All right, good evening. I'm a couple minutes behind. I apologize for that. Um, sometimes you feel like you have more day or more tasks than day. So uh, it's been a full day. Good day, though. Hey, the goal with this announcement things, Night to Shine's coming up. So this, I'm pretty excited about this. will be my first Night to Shine um, to, to be a part of that. So I think we really still need some folks. So if you just plan on working but just hadn't gotten around to contacting Michelle or signing up, please, please try to do that. Some baby shower listed there. Uh, the cl close is this, is this Sunday. Is that right? Yeah, January 8th. We also have a member meeting this Sunday night at 8. So we'll be approving church budget for 2023, committee reports, some uh, benevolent guideline changes, deacon reports, uh, missions. Uh, we're going to share a lot of things for 2023. So I think, I think it, you'll enjoy being here, and I think it'll be very informative if you'll come. So I hope that you'll do that. And then the food pantry will be the 15th. Um, and um, I'm going to start a new message series on prayer on Sunday mornings. I'm going to take a couple weeks, though, kind of backing off. So this Sunday, I'm going to kind of, kind of give you a theme that's kind of going to preach on a theme that's kind of been on my mind for this year and going to touch on the subject of urgency. Do you ever feel, how many of you guys remember Covey? Was it Covey that talked about, had the quadrants, and he talked about a lot of things in life that, sometimes are the most urgent are not usually the most important. And some of the things in the life that are most important are seldom urgent. I'll repeat that again. Some of the things that are most important in your life and my life are seldom the most urgent. And so I want to encourage, preach at myself and pre preach it for all of us a little bit on the importance of urgency where Jesus has some things to say about that. So, and then we'll get into some prayer coming up. But uh, starting tonight, I want to do, um, trying to be pretty strategic too. Uh, going to spend some, probably take a few months to get through this. But for the purpose of just strengthening myself and all of us regarding scripture, I wanted to, wanted to back up a little bit. If you're uh, teaching little kids, students or adults or whatever, just to, to just kind of help strengthen us um, from Scripture. Um, and so I'm going to go back and just look at some things from the Bible. Um, I'm going to spend a couple weeks at, at least, um, and I hope that you'll feel free to ask questions as I'm going along with this. But a little bit about the history of the Bible. Um, how did we get the Old Testament? How was that? How did all that come together? And so we'll talk a little bit about the, start tonight with that. We'll get into the New Testament, uh, codex, canonization, um, different trends. How did all of that come together? So I want to talk about that a little bit. And then we're going to look at a couple weeks on what is it, on, on the inspiration of the Bible. So we all say, we believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. What does that mean? Why, why do we believe that the Bible is inspired. What separates it? Um, if you, what separates it from other forms of literature? Right. It, we we believe it's different. Um, certainly, it's historical. It's literature. Have you guys heard the phrase? I'll talk about liter literary criticism. Is the study of literature 
value that if you're an English major, you know, you go to a secular university or something, they may even uh, teach you, uh, you may study the Bible as literature. Well, it certainly is literature. It's historically, it provides insights into history and all kinds of things. But um, so we'll look at that inspiration. And then I want to we'll spend some time doing an overview of both the Old and New Testament. And then we'll spend some time on how to study the Bible. Um, if you, I, I'm not sure that everybody in the church has ever been taught, given some principles, some ideas. If you want to spend time alone with God, how do I maximize that? Um, what are some things that can help me with that uh, to, to make my time with God and his word more, uh, more productive? And then finally, I'm going to spend some weeks on how to teach the Bible. Right? So those of you who are teaching, how do you prepare a Sunday school lesson? How do you do that? And I will say this to you, some of that preparation should be the same if you teach a kid's class. It shouldn't be really much different than if you teach an adult class. There are certain exegetical things that you need to do um, when you're teaching. And so, um, so kind of that's kind of where we're headed for the next few months. And my hope, my aim is that through all of this that God will... Um, just bless and strengthen us all as a church. You know, I've been telling some folks recently, especially regarding Sunday school classes or Bible study classes, it's like a restaurant. Your Sunday school class is like a restaurant. A few weeks back, Gail and Lisa Manning uh, invited Mindy and I, and we went out to dinner, and they took us to a, a little restaurant in Dumas. That's the first time I'd ever been to Dumas, Mississippi, and so we ate a restaurant, and just kind of plain looking on the outside, nice clean concrete floor inside, but the servers were friendly and the food was good. And I don't know what it cost because Gail, we made Gail pay for it. And, uh, but it was good food, good service, friendly, warm. And so I'm probably going to go back to Dumas to that restaurant. It's no different than your Sunday school class. If you love people, and they feel cared for, and you remember people, everybody's looking for a place to, to belong, or they fit in, or they feel accepted, or they can be a part of something bigger than themselves. And so if they go and they experience those things, and the word's pretty good, and it, it encourages them and teaches them, they're more apt to come back. Um, and I don't, I'm not saying this to offend anybody. If you all are still reading quarterlies to teach your class, you're, you're, I'm just going to tell you, you're going to bore people out of their minds. They can stay home and read the quarterly for themselves. You, Jesus didn't teach his disciples by reading something from them. So there needs to be some preparation. So if you're doing that, I want to challenge you to, <laughs> uh, to, to experiment and try some new ways to, uh, to minister the scripture. So let me pray for you hey, before we do. Well, let me just pray with you as we pray, and we are, I just want to pray for some folks for the church as we pray together, get started, and then we'll dig in. Father, we're thankful. We always say that, but we sincerely are grateful, to God, to you um, for just so much. Um, as in him, we sing, count, to count our blessings, to name them one by one. You have been faithful and you've been good to us, God, better than we, than we deserve. And, and so we're 
just grateful for your grace and your mercy towards us. Thank you for your word and pray that tonight as we look at some scripture and consider some things that you would strengthen our confidence in the Bible. And Father, we, we pray for the Morrises and for the Bryants and for the Milams, those who are going through cancer, we pray that you'd strengthen them and make your presence known to them. Uh, Lord, we pray for Miss Carolyn Brooks tonight and uh, pray that you would encourage her and Kim and pray for Brother Herbert. You continue to heal him and strengthen him, help him, Lord, to get better. Thank you for the way that you work there. Brother Rudon, we we miss him and, and pray that you'd restore strength to him as well. And We pray for the Voiles and the loss of uh, Abby's mom and pray you'd comfort the family. Um, and uh, we just also pray for those of our church family who, um, who have lost loved ones and we, we pray that, Lord, we and through working with your spirit would be led to, to be used to reach, to reach more people. Bless all that's coming up, this food distribution, clothing distribution, and just all of our efforts to impact this community. Lord, we, we pray you draw men and women unto yourself. And so I uh, just thank you for your word. pray you bless us tonight. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Hey, I, I prepared a little outline. Um, maybe to help you a little bit as we go through this, but uh, I want to get started. If you have your Bible, I want to uh, just, we believe, believe that the Bible is living, right? So can you think of any Bible verse that, that would reinforce that we believe that God's Word is alive? Anything come to mind? How about Hebrews 4.12? For the Word of God is living, it's active right? Um, and it is uh, living, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to, to discern, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joint and moral, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. God's word is active. It's living. Um, if, you, if you sit under good teaching, sit under good preaching, if you read the Bible, God will begin to make some demands upon your life. That's why some people, when they're not living for the Lord, they don't like going to church because it makes them uncomfortable because God speaks through his word. So say that. And one of the things as we, as we get into thinking about the history of the Bible is God uh, speaks through his word. He works through his word. Um, Jesus said in John 16:3, when the Spirit comes, he'll convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He does that through the Word, through the Gospel. And he confronts and speaks. And uh, so we're thankful for that. But he's preserved his Word in the Bible. And uh, he's preserved it. He's kept it. Uh, if you've, any of you have studied church history, there's been attempts throughout the ages to get rid of it. Seriously, governments, rulers um, have tried to eliminate it, burning the Bibles, trying to rid, 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 and it started in the book of Acts, um, and it's, God has, one of the things that if you think about it, it's amazing really the, the way that God has, has preserved the Bible. Um, 
I made a comment earlier about literary criticism and certain it's certainly great literature. Um, textual criticism, literary criticism, different phrases that people use uh, regarding study of scripture, textual criticism, trying to get back to understanding uh, the original authorial intent, original structure of the text, textual criticism, literary criticism, um, um, you know, it's certain there, there's certainly literary value to the Bible, um, but we believe it's more. It's, it's different than any other type of literature because of its inspiration, and I'll, I'll talk more about that in the coming uh, weeks. Second um, Peter 2. If you want to write this rest, 2 Peter 2, or chapter 1, verse 20, 21, no prophecy of Scripture is of any private in interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke or wrote as they were moved or inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Bible's witnessed to of itself, so I'll get into more on that. So uh, origin and contents, let's, let's talk about the Old Testament. How many books? 39 books, right? Three divisions to the Old Testament. And so um, the first major division of the Old Testament is the storyline. And some of, some of you have heard it. There's the law. What's the law? The law is the first five books of Moses, sometimes referred to the Pentateuch or, or often referred to as the Torah. So the first five books of the Torah, if you, and they, Genesis begins and it begins to tell a story. So you get past creation and then you get into individual characters and patriarchs, calling of Abraham, uh, the seed of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Uh, you get to, to uh, how God led Abraham to the original promised land. He was there. And then because of a famine, came back to, to Egypt and settled there. 400 years pass. God delivers them, eventually moves them back to the promised land. So there's a story there. And you get the story of Joseph and, and all of that. And then Exodus, the journey. So there, those first five books of the Bible, Law, Torah, Pentateuch, there's certainly a story. But from there, at the, from the end of that, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Okay, gives some history, provides a story. But the first seven, but if you go ahead, 17, well, through the book of Esther, there's your story. 17 books provides, those books provide the entire story of the Old Testament. Does that make sense? So the story of the Old Testament ends with Esther. So if you just read from Genesis through Esther, you'd have the whole story. So that's the first major section, the storyline of the Bible, the law and the history, Genesis through Esther. Um, and by the way, that story ends, some of, some of you in Sunday school classes, you've been studying uh, from Ezra, Nehemiah, I think this last week, Zechariah, that's, that's uh, post-exile. So the fixer-uppers, right? You like those fixer-upper shows? Ezra? Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, they're fixer-uppers. They're coming back to clean up Israel, rebuild the walls, the gates, to clean up the, the countryside, the, the agriculture, reestablish the priesthood, um, rebuild the temple. It's kind of a fixer-up thing. 
Zechariah, Haggai come back. Zechariah had been in exile. He comes back. The work begins to falter in Ezra, and so God raises up this prophet, Zechariah, to encourage God's people to get back building the temple and then to encourage them about what's, to, what's coming ahead, what God's going to do. So he's one of those prophets who's encouraging people. So you, you, that's part of the storyline in the Old Testament. Um, but it ends around the 5th century. So when the storyline ends, and then the Old Testament is followed by how many, how many years, that, which we refer to as the interbiblical period, ends with, well, the last book, of, but really from, from that time, Malachi to the time of the New Testament, 400 years pass. It's called the interbiblical period. And the Bible says there was no what? No word from the Lord. And so, and by the way, historically, if you, you all have heard in some people's Bibles, they have the Apocrypha. Have you heard of that? First and second, Esdras, Maccabees, um, Bell and the Dragon, Tobit, different books of the Apocrypha. And uh, have you heard of that? Right? Well, uh, during that 400-year period, there were some additional books written. And the Catholic Church recognized those books as Scripture. And so the Catholic, have, they have the same Bible, but they also, their Bible is different. It has the Apocrypha. Those were books written during the interbiblical period. And so they recognized those as Scripture, so they, they incorporate those into the Catholic Bible. By the way, those of you who are big King James Version Bible fans, great translation, right? 1604, King James in order to develop some political stability and for some other reason to unify some things, he ordered the King James translation. And so from 1604 to 1611, first translation came out King James, um, he ordered that translation. And it was to make the Bible, to, to spread it throughout England, right? So the first 1611 King James Bible had the Apocrypha in it, <laughs> okay, which we don't recognize as even being Scripture. So it wasn't, and it wasn't recognized as Scripture later. But um, and you'll, and you'll, did you know that um, the you the I use the word canon, which I I put in there. What is what is the what is the word canon? When you think about the Bible, what does the word canon refer to? Do you know? The canon, the Old Testament canon, the New Testament canon. Um, the canon was the books that were written that were recognized as being genuine. They were scripture. Uh, and I'll get, a, get into a little bit more of the canonization process. So why... Do we not recognize the, the apocryphal books? Why does the Catholic Church recognize? So there was a canonization process. That process is what, what was used to determine which books were kept as Scripture and which books were not kept as Scripture. I believe in the inspiration of the Bible. I also believe that God controlled the canon, canonization process of which books were included. I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but I'll talk more about that. Um... um something historically pretty significant that was very significant if you think about the history of the Bible um, 
do you all, you all ever hear the name of Johann Gutenberg? Anybody? What what did he do? Invented the printing press. Why is that significant when you think about biblical history? Yeah. So prior to a printing press, who had Bibles? Who had the Old Testament? The written New Testament, right? Those letters were compiled. But who who had who had a Bible? They were all handwritten. So ordinary families, homes, they didn't they didn't have scripture. Um uh, the printing press really for the first time is what led to people having the scriptures to read for themselves. Um, part of what um, led to the Protestant Reformation was for the first time in history because of the printing press, God at work through that, people were being able to read the Bible for themselves and begin to recognize that the Roman Catholic Church had drifted from Scripture, and so there was this an attempt by these reformers types to get to reform the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church refused to reform, and so that led to this reformation, to this revolt. Um, some of you who are uh, who espouse to reform theology, those reformers throughout England, as they got Scriptures, they began to really work hard to get the church back to Scripture, but. Um, uh, so in the Old Testament, you have this storyline. That's the first major division. Moses wrote. He gathered, wrote about creation, gathered information. God led him. We don't know all the details exactly how all of that occurred, but he mo- wrote much of that. Um, God gave him the Ten Commandments. God gave him law and began to work through that. Joshua wrote. Um, Samuel wrote. David, Solomon, kings, prophets, they wrote. So they begin to write these, what we understand now to be the Old Testament. And so my point is just the first major edition is this storyline, those law and history. Then you have the wisdom literature, which are, what, five books? So storylines contained in the those 17 books, the wisdom literature, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, um, those book Proverbs, Job, missed that, those five books are considered wisdom literature. Um, the, the wisdom literature, if you think about, they, they don't, they're not historical. Some of the Psalms um, provide some insights a little bit about Israel's history and their worship, but they don't, the, those five books don't add to the storyline of the Old Testament. Thus, they're, they're wisdom, they're different classification. Then you have the, the last books, the prophets, um, 17 uh, prophets. Uh, and if, if, I were to, if I were to write down a chart from Genesis through Esther, the storyline, right? And there's a sequence there in the story of all of that. The prophets show up and appear at different times. So beginning um, 
So they go, God's people go and possess the, the promised land. Twelve tribes given their territories. David begins to unify all of that, unites those tribes, um, um, pulls them together, which they were, that was prior to that time, they weren't, they weren't unified. It's almost kind of like the 12 tribes originally when they went into possessed the promised land functioned kind of like independent individual states. But under David's leadership, they unify. He dies. Solomon then builds on that. Okay? And then when Solomon dies, what happens to the, to the nation as a whole? Fragments. It splits. It, plits, it splits over political succession. Solomon's sons are fighting for position. And the, the kingdom splits. And so you have the northern and the southern kingdom. And that's and then as they split, you remember, that's when they started to drift into sin. And so if you do a timeline, that's when God begins. He originally was trying to get them back to focus on God through the, through the judges. So you have 400 years of these judges. And, but so then God begins to, they want a king. So they, well, they get kings. And then God raises up these prophets, and that's the other major section of the Old Testament. So those prophets, historically, timeline, they fall, really fall in towards the, the, the time of the kingdom dividing, and they're trying to draw God's people back. But from those time, even as they, before they go into exile, post-exile, that's when you see Historically, that's when the work of the prophets occurs. But the, really, the prophets, again, they just show up at different points in Israel's story, different points in the timeline. Does that make sense? So, again, Genesis to Esther, wisdom literature, and the prophets. Uh, what we understand to be a book of the Old Testament, so like um, the book of Exodus, um, when Moses wrote, other Old Testament authors wrote. They they didn't they did they didn't write they didn't have books. Right? It wasn't written in a book. What did they write on, or write in? Scrolls. So all of these all of these books of the Old Testament originally were individual scrolls. Um, Ezra and Nehemiah were one book, probably one scroll. They weren't originally separated, but so they were all written in scroll form. What were the two major kinds of writing surfaces? One writing surface was made from plants called papyrus. And then the other writing material they had was made uh, either vellum or parchment was made from animal skins. So it was different, but where they prepared leather. And all of those uh, were formed into scrolls. So individual scrolls, and if you think about this, hand copied. How, how many of you could imagine trying to take just one book of the Bible? Maybe 
maybe um, Jonah wouldn't be too bad. <laughs> but you had to hand copy one book of the Bible, let alone lots of books. But you had to hand copy a book of the Bible and get everything exactly right. And you did it over and over and over. These scribes, these individuals who hand copied these scrolls. Um, the, have you heard the word codex? K-O-D-E-X, codex. That means book. It's book form. So originally scrolls, they were individual books of the Bible. Later they were put into book form. That's called codex. That didn't, that didn't happen until the second century. Uh, that didn't happen until New Testament times. So in the New Testament, when Jesus, you remember when the, uh, Jesus said he went into the temple and they read from scrolls? So everything was still cr scroll form. Um, most of the copies by that time were done on um, papyrus, was, uh, had, had gained some more over, over um, parchment. But... Um, so, codex, everything began, began in the New Testament, second century began to, put in, to be put into book form. Um, so, when were the books of the Old Testament written? Well, if you, if you go back and you study the Old Testament itself and you study the timeline itself, that it provides, most scholars believe between 1400 B.C. and 400 B.C., Right before the, the, the beginning of that, of that silent period, that interbiblical period, there's a thousand year period there where all of the books of the Old Testament were written. Uh, over 30 different authors. Some of the books of the Bible, we're not exactly sure which ones were written by whom, just like in the New Testament. We don't know for sure who wrote the book of Hebrews. Um, a lot of different theories about that, but most of the books we, we know that in over 30 authors. What was the main language? What was most of the Old Testament all of it written in? Hebrew. Uh, Hebrew. Hebrew was the base language, and it is, it is continued the base language for all Semitic languages. So Phoenician, Assyrian, Arabic, all of that, all of those languages have their base in Hebrew. And so up until the exile, right? So the exile, when the northern kingdom falls to the Assyrians, they're taken off. About 130, 150 years later, the southern kingdom finally falls to the Babylonians. Uh, all of God's people, their, their, the common language was Hebrew. Once they went into exile and they began to live in different and there were different languages and dialects. Some of that began to affect God's people of a period of time. And there's a few, play, few books of the Bible that were believed to be written in Aramaic. But that was all post-exile stuff. Books, uh, possibly Ezra and Nehemiah, maybe Jeremiah, um, parts of Daniel. Uh, so there, we do that there was believed to be some Aramaic, but primarily Hebrew. Um, Hebrew scrolls. So this is pretty, pretty amazing. Uh, and you still, there's still museums in different parts of the world where you can go back and you can look at some of these scrolls. They still have some of them. They were an average, looked at average in length of 30 feet long. That's pretty long. 
rolled up and usually t about 10 inches tall, a scroll. 10 inches tall, 30 feet long. Um, and the original Hebrew was all consonants, no vowels. Um, so A-E-I-O-U, our vowels. Can, can you imagine um, if, our, if you begin to read and all there was is consonants, no vowels, and you had to read it? Those originally scrolls, there would be columns, and the scrolls have all consonants, no vowels, and there's very little spacing between any of it. Very difficult to read, very slow process to read. Uh, just kind of run on, run on. And it wasn't until the New Testament area, some of you heard uh, the Jewish scribes, they were called Masoretes. Masoretes, have you heard of them? These Masoretes scribes in the New Testament, these scribes for the first time begin to take these Hebrew scrolls, spread them out a little bit, these consonants, and begin to add vowels and actually begin to number them. And the purpose of that was to make them easier to read, to make them more clear. Um, you go back to, some of you heard of King Hezekiah. Well, if you go back and read about King Hezekiah in the 8th century, he, he was one who began to gather up scrolls. So the books of the Old Testament, those books, those scrolls, King Hezekiah began to gather those, those up, uh, put them together and group them and, and uh, pull them all together. Um, and uh, by when you talk about translate, you, you, you and I, I'm sure you've probably heard people be, say before there's errors in the Bible, and as these Bibles were copied and transmission occurred, that errors began to spring up. Um, do, you, do any of you remember hearing about the Dead Sea Scrolls in Qumran? You remember hearing that? 1947, uh, there was a little boy was near the Dead Sea, okay? He's out, little kid, he's out playing, and he's throwing rocks in a cave. And he throws rocks in this cave, he begins to hear what it sounds like glass breaking or pottery breaking. And so they begin to investigate, and inside this cave, which was, out, was in what there was a community called in Qumran was a, a, a kind of a, would be a kind of a suburb, a community of Jews, Qumran community. All they found when they went in to go in there, they found all of these uh, vases, jars, sealed, and inside all of these were scrolls, Old Testament scrolls, discovered in 1947. Uh, in those Dead Sea Scrolls, every, they found copies of every book of the Old Testament except Esther. Why is that significant? Here's why it's significant. When they pulled out, those things had been preserved. So you remember, you remember what year Jerusalem was destroyed, the city? What year? Remember, you remember Jesus even told his disciples, he referred to a time when he, they're, they're outside of Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives. They're looking back on Jerusalem. He talks about the temple and the glory and the splendor of the temple. And Jesus said, it's going to be destroyed. Every stone's going to be torn down. In AD 70, right? So the, 
go back to the temple. Who constructed the temple? Solomon constructed the temple. Who destroyed the temple? Babylonians, right? 586, they come down there. Nebuchadnezzar destroys the temple. Who rebuilds the temple? The fixer-uppers. They come out of exile. Zerubbabel leaves those people. They rebuild the temple. It wasn't as big. It wasn't like the original temple, but they rebuild it, and then it's destroyed again in AD 70. Who did that? The Romans. Why did the Romans come into Jerusalem and destroy the temple? Because there were a group of Jews who were revolting against Rome. And so it was a four-year siege. They put up quite a battle, quite a defense, starved them to death. You remember some of the Old Testament prophets talking about a coming day when God's people will eat the flesh of each other? Starved them out four years, starved them to death. People died. People were began to literally eat human remains. That happened when they came in and and Rome destroyed it. Um, you know, when you go back and study by the, the Rome really didn't care what you did as long as you, there was no disturbances and you paid taxes. <laughs> uh, they kind of still, I mean, even in Jesus' day, Rome still let the Jews worship, practice, kind of do their own thing, but they, they still under were Roman rule. So the temple is destroyed, uh, I got off track a little bit, but the Qumran community dissolved. All those people fled in AD 70 with that destruction. Before they left, it was believed that they preserved all of these Old Testament scrolls. And then in 1947, they were discovered. So here's what I started to say. The point of that, when they began to take those scrolls that they found in 1947 and compare them to the, the scrolls they were still using, they were identical making the point that when these scribes, when these people translated books of the Old Testament, they was done with perfection. There weren't transmission errors. And that's, that was what was significant about those Dead Sea Scrolls because it verified the historical accuracy of those Old Testament books. Again, I believe there was a greater source, a greater power at work preserving. God is preserving his word through all of that. So uh, let's talk about some of the translations. So, um, so we said the, the original Old Testament was written in Hebrew over 30 different offers over a period of a thousand years. Hezekiah in the, in the eighth century begins to collect these books, gather them up. And it was believed that most of the, this collection process, bringing them all together in the Old Testament occurred from 200 B.C. to 100 A.D. So there's about a 300-year period of time, and they don't know exactly how all that, but all of those were finally gathered up, collected, put in some kind, of, some kind of chronological order, which they would have known as Jews, how to order the sequence of those books. That was their history. And so that began to be, begin to close up. Um, um, the, the uh, I forget what year the first, they found the first copy of the Old Testament as we know it when that was first. I forget what, when that occurred. But um, if you go back historically, so the children of Israel are in, uh, so get into translations. They're living in the promised land, taken off as exiles. 
the northern kingdom falls to the Assyrians, right? They take all the, most of the northern kingdom, those 10 tribes, they go off into exile into Assyria. What happens to the Assyrian empire while God's people are living up there north in exile? The Assyrians fall to who? The Babylonians. So while God's people are off living in exile, the Babylonians come in and overtake the Assyrians. Later, there's a point, let me tell you this, later the Babylonians come down and take over the southern kingdom. And then they take those people off into exile. And then while God's people, some of them had been there living for a hundred and hundred, well, probably less than that, 80, 90 years, then the southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin, the southern tribes, those people come in and they, they join fellow Jews who have already been living there 80 or 90 years. So now they're all living in exile under Babylonian rule. And while they're all living in Babylonian rule, the Persians come in and destroy the Babylonians. And you remember Jeremiah was preaching this to the inhabitants of the southern kingdom. You're going to be there 70 years, Jeremiah 25, Jeremiah 29. You remember those verses that were popularized? For I know the plans that I have for you to give you a future and to give you a hope. That's Jeremiah 29. We people put them on the refrigerators today. The context of that, Jeremiah is telling these people from the southern kingdom who are going into exile under the Babylonians, you're going to be there 70 years and then God's going to bring you home. And so the Babylonians fall to the Persians and the second year that the Persians are in control. There's a king named Cyrus. And what does he do? He's a pagan king. Doesn't even know God. He says, whoever you, this new political position, any of you Jews that want to go home, you're free to go. And a very minuscule amount of people go back. If you read the first, first chapter or two of Ezra, Ezra it says 49,000. That's all that go back. Uh, the majority of the people, they don't want to go back. They had jobs, homes. They're living, they've been living in Assyria and then Babylon and then it becomes Persia. They don't want to go back. They're happy with their life at that point where they are, where the way it is. They don't, why do you want to go back to Jerusalem? The, the temple's destroyed. The gates are destroyed. There's no walls. There's no priesthood. Priest hadn't functioned in 70 years. There's no temple, no sacrifice, no altars. The land, if you know outside of Jerusalem, all of that was agriculture, farmland, all grown up. But there was a remnant that, that wanted to go back under Zerubbabel and then later under Nehemiah, under God brings a people back, the fixer-uppers, right? They're, they're working. And, and so they come back and while they're there, what happens? Now, they're, even when they go back, they're still under Persian rule. What happens to the Persians? Who do they fall to? The Greeks. Remember, you guys heard of Alexander the Great? And you remember, the, they thought that was the zenith of all history. By the way, all world empires have fallen. Talked about this Sunday school class. And depending on which historian you read, some say there was this many world empires or this many world empires. They've all fallen. I try to be doom and gloom, but 
why would any of us think that the only world empire that's never going to fall is the United States? And by the way, what strengthens a nation, the Bible says, is righteousness. And the more and more we push God out of, and we get drift, what Jack preached about Sunday, the more and more we drift away from his word and everybody just does what they want to do, the weaker the nation becomes. And eventually, God takes his hand of blessing and protection upon them, just like he did his people, and they fall. So, I personally don't think that the Ameri- that we as a nation are invincible and we can't fall. So, I mean, if history repeats itself, all world empires fall. So, my point is, when Alexander that took over, you remember Hellenism, Greek literature, what were the Greeks known for? Philosophy, education, the arts, literature. They established a, a unified world language called coin. Coin A, coin, right? You're that K-O-I-N-E is the way we write that. Why is that significant regarding biblical history? Well, if you were a Jew and you still wanted to worship God and over a period of time, every, all of your, everything in the country was all Greek, coin. Okay, most people started learning coin. Currency, documents, literature, it's all Greek. God's people, for the first time, they, they begin to have to learn Greek, it's coin language, and so there was a cry for the Old Testament scriptures in order for them to function in synagogues. They, the Bible was translated from Hebrew into Greek, and so the Greek translation of the Old Testament is called what? You remember? It's called the Septuagint, the Greek Septuagint. Um, and so, the, in Alexandria, in Egypt, there was an order, and 72 Hebrew scholars got together and worked for, I think, seven years and translated the Hebrew scrolls. All of that was translated into Greek and became the Greek Septuagint. Why is that important? During Jesus' day, all right, what... Right, the the Jewish people, Israel, Judah, in Jesus' day, they were probably using the Septuagint, the Greek scriptures. Um, Very likely, Jesus knew them all. Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek. I have no, I have no problem thinking that Jesus knew knew them all. Which, which translation of the Old Testament was Paul most likely to have used? Hebrew or Greek? Septuagint. What do you think? I would think he probably used the Hebrew. Why would I think that? Because he was a Pharisee. And the Pharisees, those, those certain ones would have, they felt like the Hebrew was more sacred. It's a pretty good possibility that that Paul used the Hebrew, I would certainly think that 
blue-collar guys like Peter and James and John, fisherman type, probably used the Greek Septuagint. So, but that's kind of the translation, how you got, how you got it. Um, the early church, as it began to begin to work, um, used the Greek, that, because that was the growing common translation of the Old Testament, had shifted from Hebrew to Greek. Um, um, so, let me, let me wind it down. I wanna, I'll, I'll try to get in a little bit more of some specifics about the canonization process next week and then kind of shift over into this, but just kind of make some closing comments about the Hebrew or the Old Testament Bible. Um, you and I, as well as Jews, as well as Muslims, uh, believe that the Old Testament is more than just literature. It's more than just history. We believe it's sacred history, that it's, it's the, God's word, um, that the Old Testament is God's revelation to man. It reveals what God has done in the past. The Old Testament also reveals what God's going to do in the future. Um, and, and this is one of the things that's always amazed me. If you ever sometimes... If, if you ever have doubts in your mind about the inspiration of the Bible and you want to, I mean, I'm sincerely, uh, have, you, have you guys ever had entertained doubts about this? Is the Bible really God's word? I was 19 years old in Bible college, raised in church, and I never thought about it. And I was in a New Testament survey class, and the guy began to talk to us about some of the things I'm talking about. And I never thought of it. Are the red, are the red letters in the New Testament, are those really Jesus' words? Did Jesus really say those things? Are there errors in those things? And I was introduced to this synoptic problem of the differences between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. And, and there were those who who attacked to tear it down because there were inconsistencies or in these God and I began to learn that stuff and there's value by the way there's value in learning those theories and those ideas right if it's taught in the right way it just makes your faith stronger but I remember the first time I'd never thought about that as an 18 19 year old guy really about the history the inspiration of the Bible and it kind of created a crisis in me if this is not really God's word, then what am I doing here? Why did I move away from home? Had worked in General Motors and was getting ready to go into GMI, General Motors Institute, the same guy who got me a job at the Ford Assembly, or truck, GM truck assembly plant in Flint, also got me into General Motors, and so I was gonna go into GMI, work for General Motors, probably a pretty decent future is what I thought was gonna happen. Since this call upon my life, go to Bible college, get exposed to this stuff, and for it created doubt in my thought, what in the world am I doing here? I feel like God's called me to do this. I'm getting ready to give my life to this, and this, I don't even know if this is, if the Bible is true, if there's errors in here. And there was a guy who was a graduate of New Orleans Seminary. He was named Richard Smith, and by the way, he pastored. If you want to go back, look up 
Richard Smith, Dr. Richard Smith, he grew up in Mississippi. And he was persecuted as a pastor years and years ago in Mississippi because he took a stand that was not a popular stand when there was a lot of race issues going on. And you can look him up, Google him, Richard Smith. He was one of my Bible professors. His wife was named Nina. And I remember leaving my dorm room, I was by myself, 500 miles away from home, and I had this crisis of belief, this crisis of faith that I know I wasn't sure that the Bible was true. And I walked down Lucretia Street in Oakland City, Indiana, and there was a guy outside raking his yard, and it was Richard Smith, R.B. Smith. And we got into a conversation, and I, I don't remember everything. But I remember that I kind of broke down and started crying. And he said, what is your name? He told my name. I said, Charlie. He said, well, come in, the, come in the house. So Richard took me into the house, and he asked Miss Nina to go get a, give me something to drink. And he and I sat in his family room. He said, tell me what's going on with you. And I began to share him some of these questions. And, he said, and I don't remember everything he said to me, but I remember he spent some time with me and, and got me back focused on how I could know the Bible was true and reliable. And, it, and it, it was just one of those God moments that made a huge difference in my life. And again, I don't remember everything he said, but, but I remember resolving I resolved at that point in my life, God, I am never going to doubt your word again. And what I started to say, if you're having doubts about the Bible, if you'll get in and study and read the Bible, this is what I've told our kids, our daughters, our son. If you live out here and you go to college and you go to university and you're going to hear, hear people say, you got to be a fool to believe that. I thought you were smart. I thought you were intelligent. How can you believe that? It advocates racism. It advocates slavery. The Old Testament is outdated. You're going to hear all this kind of stuff, right? Undermining the authority and the inspiration and the reliability of God's word. But here's what I know. Those of you teaching Zechariah, you read, I think, was it this, Jason, 13, 14 this week? Look at what Zechariah says about this Messiah who is going to come. Written, right? Written, what, 500 years before Jesus came? Look at the detail. Look at how it describes it. Go back and study Isaiah chapters 11, 55, a suffering servant in Isaiah 53. And you see those prophecies, and you see all of them fulfilled perfectly, accurately, one after the other. And then you ask yourself, how is it possible that 500 years, 800 years, 1,000 years, this was written before Christ, and all of these things have been fulfilled perfectly? And you think that some group of men could have written that, apart from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, It, it's reliable. And there's not, I can't, I shared this from somebody else the other day. I, I, uh, I get sometimes a little discouraged, a little frustrated, a little cantankerous. Spirit gets disordered, get critical of Mindy. Nobody else can do anything right. I'm the only one who's got a brain. What are these idiots doing? You, you, you know, you can start thinking like that, right? 
I've come to recognize when I start thinking like that, I've got a problem. And as Ian Bounds said in his prayer books, he describes it as a disordered spirit, and I've learned where to go. And there's never been a time when I've gotten like that that I didn't get alone with God in, as Jack was preaching about Sunday, I did a fantastic job that I haven't gotten alone with God in his word, and he's restored me and given me a sense of peace and order back to my life. Um, so uh, I'll get in more into the different views of inspiration, but I, I just, there's no way that men could have been smart enough to write the Bible and for it to be unified and as a whole apart from God. That's what I'm trying to say. And, and um, his, his, his word has just kind of, has been an anchor to my life. It's been an anchor to my life. It's been an anchor to my marriage. And just, and then that's the same thing I've been telling our kids. Just, if you have doubts, go back and read it for yourself. Don't rely upon everything that everybody else is saying, how they're ridiculing it. Go back and read it and study it and spend time with God and see what happens. So, right. I'll stop there. What, do you have any questions before we go? Any other that questions that you might have about, we're out of time, but things that you're curious about more in detail? Um, have any of you thought about really that, about the Old Testament, how that was written, gathered, collected, put together? Have you thought about that before? Right. So, uh, okay, Let's, let me pray with you. Father, thank you for um, just time to be here tonight together. I know that the enemy would attack and cause us to doubt your word question it, to walk away from it. But God, we thank you that you, just as you've preserved it, that God, you're faithful to us and, and that you just continue to strengthen our faith. Um, and I do pray for our students, young people, college students, that God, you'd protect them from the evil one and they would be secure and set in their understanding of you and your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.